Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'll give you a quick mentor minute, and that is the difference between justification and sanctification. You often hear terms in the Christian life, and sometimes we're not real sure what some of those terms mean, uh, but we should know at least these two. Justification means that when you come to Christ, you are declared righteous. It's literally a judicial term. It isn't, doesn't mean that you're just sort of made righteous, you get better. You are declared to be so in the courts of heaven because Christ has paid for your sin. And he gives to you his righteousness. You're to be declared righteous. Sanctification is living out what justification declares that I am. Sanctification is my daily growth in the Christian life, my time in the Word, my time in prayer, my time in being encouraged by others. It's the growth of the Christian life. So those two are very essential, uh, Christianity 101, so I hope that's of help to you this morning on that. Romans chapter 8, here we are. We are in a, a short series. I had mentioned before when we finished Genesis, I was going to take a number of weeks to discuss a number of things that I can't get to if I'm in, in, a, in an expository series in a particular book. So we are looking at, uh, we started last week, we're talking about guilt and shame and how shame comes from guilt. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look, look at worry and fear. And as a matter of fact, there is a double parking space in every mind for worry. We all have it, you know. We're all double parked there, okay? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. And then we'll look at anxiety and depression. So real light subjects we're going to be looking at here. And I'm certainly no expert on all of these. Last week we talked about shame, and we looked at Genesis chapter 2, where in chapter 2, in the last verse of chapter 2, it says of Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed. And then in chapter 3, all of a sudden they are naked and Ashamed. And we said the nakedness there is more the emotional nakedness uh, rather than just physical nakedness. And God comes to Adam. He'd already told him. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden you are not to eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And they started dying that day. They, were, they died spiritually being separated from God and started dying physically that day. But what entered was shame. Tremendous amounts of shame came upon them because they were guilty. And the next thing you know, they're hiding. They're hiding themselves from God. They're covering themselves with fig leaves. And this is a description more than a definition of what shame looks like. It's what I don't want people to know about me. And so God comes looking for Adam. Adam, where art thou? Where are you? Well, I, I, I could hear your voice in the garden, so I hid myself. Why did you hide? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Who told you you were naked? Now, I don't remember which service I mentioned it last week, but I've mentioned it before. I think that conscience told them that they were naked. Who told you you were naked? Not going to be the enemy. Uh, it's, they didn't need a conscience prior to the fall. There was no need for a conscience. They were pure. There was no sin. There was no evil that had come into their lives. There was no need for sort of a moral compass or direction. But once they sinned, God has plant, planted, a, uh, planted a conscience into every single human being. And we find that in the Romans it says the conscience either accuses or excuses. And a conscience can become shipwrecked. It can become defiled. It can become seared over a period of time 
when we take what we know to be true and we reject it, when we continue to live in persistent sin, then our conscience no longer tells us what true north is. So we talked about shame being the fear of being found out, uh, the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of being exposed, the fear of people finding out something we don't want them to know about us. So that sort of laid the groundwork for today. And I said I couldn't get through that subject in one week, so I thought we would take a little bit more time today. So we're going to look at verse, um, what I would call shame and the gospel. And it's interesting because Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. So we're going to talk about shame and the gospel today. Verse 1, reading through to verse 5 or verse 4 in Romans chapter 8, we read these words. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be sin and be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Lord, today, as we look at this subject in more depth, we want to thank you for what you'll reveal to us and set us free, Lord, from all the shame that we feel in this life. And Father, it's our desire to see that you'd be the one to receive all the glory. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk a little bit uh, about shame in the believer and shame in the unbeliever. Now, uh, a lot of people here today, and I would have to assume there's a certain number of you that have yet to come to Christ. You have yet to be justified or declared righteous, and we're glad you're here. But there's two audiences here to address. We'll talk a little bit about the shame that a believer feels and the shame that an unbeliever feels and how we can resolve those two. Um, When I think of the shame of the believer, uh, we have to identify uh, where that shame is coming from, because it can come from two different sources. The first source that shame can come for the believer is simply coming through the line of Adam, in which every single person in the world has come. Everyone has come through the line of Adam. The Bible tells us, it says, For as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So when Adam sinned, and all of us were in the loins of Adam, so to speak, we are guilty in Adam, whether you like it or not. We've inherited a sinful nature. We feel it. We feel the shame that comes from that. But then there's also a second type of shame that is put on us by the world or by others. We'll get to that in in a minute. But let's take a look, first of all, at the first time, that is coming through the line of Adam. Guilt um, is the obvious sense that we have violated a moral or ethical principle of God. We feel that because Romans chapter 2 says, the law of God is written in our hearts. Scripture says eternity is in our hearts. People know right from wrong. There's always a sense of guilt, and you can see it from a child that is two years old. When they get into the cookie jar, and they hear you coming, and they hide behind the curtain, 
Adam, where art thou? You know, and the little kid is ashamed. And what have you done? Did you take of the cookies I told you not to take of? You know, and it's it's there from from two years up. It's there. It's just built into the system. And the hiding behind the curtain, or running, or getting under the bed, is a form of dealing with with shame. All right, starting at a very very early age. Now. When God says, Adam, have you eaten of the tree? He's asking an obvious rhetorical question. God isn't wondering what happened. He knows full well what happened. But then the Lord makes provision. Because a little bit later on, God is the one that clothes Adam and Eve in the garments of the skins of animals, portraying that there will be a time when one will come and clothe us in his own righteousness, all right? That being Jesus. So there's always a pointing to that. But in dealing with our shame through the gospel as a believer and identifying the shame as, first of all, coming through the fact that we have sinned in life, we come to this portion of Scripture in Romans where Paul is unleashing the gospel at its greatest depth. There's no other, other epistle or writing anywhere that goes to the depth that the Apostle Paul goes in Romans uh, all the way through all 16 chapters in Romans. But in Romans chapter 8, we read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when we were looking at kingdom living a few weeks back, I, I, would, I would make a statement and I would say this. That is either a cliche or it's a reality. And sometimes when you are maybe talking to somebody and they say, well, I'm not very religious, or they'll say, they might even say to you, oh, I see you're very religious. What's our response? Oh, I'm not relig religious. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Is that a cliche or is that a reality? Because if you still feel condemned of God, there is something wrong. Because Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we're struggling, then what part of no don't we understand? All right. Then he goes on and he reveals everything all the way through. And of course, all the way through is just nothing but the gospel. It's the gospel all the way through. So here we're dealing with an identity issue. Do I, as a believer, can I honestly say before others and before God, I identify with the fact that there is now, therefore, no condemnation in my life as far as my vertical relationship with God is concerned. Can I say that? That doesn't mean that I don't sin. It doesn't mean that God doesn't deal with me in my sin. It doesn't mean that there isn't guilt associated with it. It doesn't mean uh, that there won't be consequences, but there is no ultimate condemnation. And the beauty of being able to go before the Lord when you know you have sinned. I had a young man come to me right after the last service. He says, why do I keep on doing the same thing over and over again? And I said, my answer to him was, when we realize what sin actually does to us, and when we see the offense it is to God, even though we know we are forgiven, and when we see that it taints the glory of God that we're supposed to be manifesting, when that becomes a greater reality, that the strength of that realization of the gospel will overpower the temptation to sin. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to be struggling with this. But 
Paul comes along and he opens up the whole gateways to this and he says, this is your identity. This is not a cliche. You have been forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Jesus, on the cross in Hebrews, though the Bible doesn't say Jesus was naked, it says they cast lots for his clothing, so we assume he was naked, and that's how they hung people. It says Jesus, when he was hung on the cross, despising the shame. Some might say uh, rejecting the shame. Naked and not ashamed. It's taking you all the way back to the garden. Because that's what we're trying to get back to. We'll talk about that in a moment. We all want to get back to Eden. Everybody wants to get back to the garden. And so even in Jesus' death, there is nakedness and no shame. He despises, he rejects the shame that would normally come from that particular situation. I have a friend of mine, and he will often ask people this, no matter where they fit, believer or unbeliever. He will say, what is the greatest negative emotion that you live with on a daily basis? It's a good question, isn't it? He'll be on a bus, playing, and he, and he just sort of gets into these conversations as he's talking, and he'll say, hey, I'm just curious, what's the greatest negative emotion that you deal with on a regular basis? If I passed out a 3 by 5 card, which we're not going to do, but if I did pass out a 3 by 5 card, and I said, I want you to write down your greatest negative emotion that you deal with, basically, what is your greatest shame that you don't want anybody to know about? Because if they knew about it, you feel that that would be shame. You feel they might even cast shame on you if they knew about it. And, and, and what are you doing to prevent anybody from knowing that? Well, that becomes an eye-opener when he's talking to groups of mixed people, believers and unbelievers, because once they say, well, here's my greatest fear that I deal with or my greatest emotion that I deal with on a regular basis, what are you going to do with it? Where do you, where do you, where do you dump that? How do you handle that? All right, and then it's off and running to the gospel. What do people do, and I'm talking here mainly about believers, what is it that we don't want people to know about us, and what efforts, to what extent do we go to keep people at bay, to keep people from finding out who we really are? Now, do I think we ought to stand up and just shout out all of our sin and everything? No, no, no. I mentioned last week we were not doing that, all right? But I will tell you later when we start closing this out, there are people that you should have in your life that you feel very safe with, that you feel loved by, and they're not going to judge you when you bring some of that to the table to them. That's a little bit later on, but I just want you to, to understand that's a that's key thing. What does it look like when we go to hide? Sometimes it could be uh, the way we dress, our looks, our desire to let people, to be a name dropper, to let people know who we hang around, uh, tell people how much we make, the corner office we have, whatever. So often we're trying to project something that, that is trying to keep people away from finding out what's really going on and project an image that we know deep down is really not true. And so a lot of these things just naturally come through the line of Adam. And here's the problem. It takes lots of energy to pretend. Boy, does it take a lot of energy. It takes lots of energy to continue to put forth a false front, 
uh, to present yourself in a way that you know deep down you are struggling with, that when you go to bed at night and close your eyes, you're thinking, oh, if people only knew this, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't care for me, I've got to keep this going. And you're finding yourself, as I find myself from time to time, trying to figure out some way to keep that, that, that particular uh, avenue not open, closed off, the vulnerability. Because vulnerability is considered um, weakness, when in fact, the Bible says, confessing your faults, your sins, one to another, bearing one another's burdens. How do you do that? How do you do that if nobody knows what's going on? So lots of energy. So take inventory of that and then meditate deeply on Romans 8, 1. There is, now therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice, those who are in Christ Jesus. Others have to deal with that feeling of being condemned. The second thing that a believer has to face is having shame inflicted or placed on them by others. And this can go both ways, but I'm just talking about believers understanding their identity in Christ, and now the fact that here is a type of shame that doesn't come through the line of Adam, doesn't come from feeling guilty. It comes from other people making you feel bad. Um, sometimes, and I mentioned it last week, sometimes it could be a parent that says uh, you'll never amount to anything, or it could be a coach. Uh, you're, you're the most uncoordinated kid I've ever had to coach, or a teacher, you're, you're, you're stupid, or whatever. All these things can be put on us, can be put on us, and that is shame that is on us by other people. My son David, when he lived in this area, he lives in Nashville now, but he was, had a work for a government contractor, he had to do a lot of work, and his boss said, we're going to put you on a project that nobody wants, because the person you're going to be dealing with is very nasty, really difficult, and we know that you're new to it, but just do what you can. And every day, he got verbally abused by this person. And I eventually told David, I said, can't you say to them on the phone, listen, that's not how you talk to people. He goes, no, Dad, they're the customer. You don't, you don't say that. And so I saw him literally, I saw his demeanor, I saw his personality almost changing. He's just a great kid, a great outgoing kind of guy, and he was just shrinking down. He was losing everything about who he was. And he eventually got out of that and has got a very good job in Nashville. The point is, is that what somebody can do to you with their words, with casting shame upon you, it's just over and over and over again. Madison Avenue is a genius, a genius at putting shame on people every time you see an ad, TV, anywhere. But they don't say, shame on you for not owning a Rolls-Royce or whatever, you name the car, all right? Shame on you for not living in that neighborhood. Shame on you if you don't use that kind of shaving cream. No, they don't do that. They say, use this and all the girls will be chasing you. Subtly, shame on you if you're not using this. Shame on you if you're not driving that. But it's very subtle. They just come in the back door. But it drives people. And they really understand the psychology of shame. They leverage it every single day. Be the first person on your block to own this. Why? Because you'll make all the other people feel ashamed and, and guilty and jealous and envious because you own it. They're gonna, they play this out. They understand the sin nature of man better than the church does. And they're making lots of money off of it day after day. Social media can shame you no end. 
How many times, if you're on social media and you take a picture, oh, oh, everybody get ready, okay. I don't like the way that looks, my hair's not right. I, you know, I would, I don't, they can't see my muscles. I, they can't see mine anyway. I don't have it. Uh, and, 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 you, and then everybody gets into a big fight over which is the best shot, and then you send it, and everybody on the other side thinks, what a happy group, and you've been fighting the entire time over, over which picture. See? It, and, and you're putting out a, a false image out there. And then people are often ashamed that they don't look like that. It, is, it drives our culture. It drives how we see things. It drives life. Every year, without fail, a major person somewhere in life has a moral fall or an ethical fall. It could be somebody in, in uh, the government. It could be somebody in the military. It's often in the ministry. Uh, a, a pastor that has an enormous church and people are following. And then you find out that for 20 or 30 years, they've been living a completely double life. And being that I'm in the ministry, I think, oh, Lord, how... how how did that happen? I think of a guy that had a, a church in Florida that he started years ago. I've actually been to the church way back, and this church exploded. A very charismatic personality and come out of the drug culture and everything. And this church got up to about 20,000 people on a Sunday morning. Now, if you want to hear Mike Minter, you go online. There's about eight people that listen to me a week. When you... <laughs> When, when he was finished speaking, you could go up and get the CDs that were on They had eight lanes of people in cash registers. I said, man, apparently I'm not very good. At any rate, years later, I find out this guy has been hooked on pornography all through the years, has slept with numerous women in the church, including women on staff and women all around the country. And here's the first thought that came to my mind. You mean to tell me that when you started having these temptations, there was nobody you could talk to? You, you didn't have any friends? There was nobody you could go to and say, listen, I'm really, I'm really struggling. Nobody? Man, I've got so many people around me. I've got, I got all kinds of people that can walk up to me and say, how's your thought life? What are you doing? I've got lots of people. And I don't say that boastfully. I say that out of fear. Wherefore, man, think if he stand up, take heed lest he fall. And then we had another huge one up in Chicago. Many of you, I won't mention his name, but many of you know the particular individual I'm talking about. Had an incredible impact worldwide. Listen to his messages. Been there. Incredible guy. Only to find out for 31 years. He's been fooling around. He got canned. And there are others that have done some embezzling and taken money out of the church. I'm thinking, was there nobody? Was there nobody in your life that you couldn't have gone to and said, hey, George, Sally, whoever, I know you're not going to condemn me. I know you're going to love me. But I'm really, I'm seeing myself slipping here. Can you help me? And having somebody like that is so important. These people fell because obviously there was nobody around them they felt comfortable going to. Confessing our sins, one another, bearing one another's burdens, all these, these, these things that, that, that we, we so desperately need. Now, let's talk about how shame drives us, and then we'll talk about shame for dealing with a person who is not in, in the kingdom of God. I'm thinking of King David in the Old Testament. 
after he spots Bathsheba and sins, and now she's pregnant. Well, you could say, well, he's living in fear that people are going to find out. Sure, he's the king. But there's shame involved. There's horrific shame involved. Uh, he's, he's ashamed that people will find out. So what's his cover? Well, let's get her husband off the field, Uriah. And he'll sleep with her and they'll realize it's, it's his child. But he doesn't sleep with her. And he, David gets him drunk and it doesn't work. Then David has him killed. Shame has this guy killed. All right? Then if you go back and you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David is describing what it was like when he kept these things in. He said, it was, it was like my bones were rotting because I was hiding this, I was holding this. That's what shame does. Nobody to go to. And so we see the, the confession that pours out in, 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 in those Psalms. King David. So there's a mixture of guilt and shame triggering one another. Then there's Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's walking around. He goes, look at my kingdom. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've done. Look at all the stuff that I've got, everything. In other words, he's very proud of what he has done. And he's talking about all the great things. And God comes along and goes, really? Well, you're going to have a little humbling experience. And he makes him eat grass like the ox, and it goes on for a long time. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar comes out of this. God restores his sanity. And Nebuchadnezzar gives this most amazing testimony at the end of Daniel chapter 4, where he confesses that God is sovereign over all. He is the one that we're to worship. And he humbles people that, 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 that are so proud. And many times, shame is, uh, we're afraid to tell anybody that it's actually a type of pride in many respects. So we see it, we see it in Nebuchadnezzar. We see it, I, I, I'll say it. Our president has trouble with this. Look at all the things I've done. And most presidents, I think, would tell you that. I remember uh, old George Bush. I could get them all mixed up. George H.W. Anyway, the older Bush, they asked him one time on 60 Minutes, why did you want to be head of the CIA? Why do you want to be president? He was very honest. He said, I love power. I love power. i got to be in control. And if you dig in, you dig into our present president or past presidents, often there's a lot of shame associated with it. I don't want to be seen as a failure. I don't want to be seen as not being in charge. Those are all shame factors in, in many respects. And they drive us. They drive us all the time. But one of the ones I find the most interesting, we don't need to turn here, but here's a passage that's just so interesting. It's called The Parable of the Unjust Steward. It's found in the Gospel of Luke. And it starts out, Jesus is telling this parable, and he says, uh, there was a, a business owner, <coughs> and he had a guy that managed his business, sort of an accountant. And he called him in and he said, word has it that you're not managing my business well, uh, you're, gonna, you're, you're fired, you're done. And the guy talks to himself. And in Scripture you'll find, uh, why so downcast, O my soul? That's talking to yourself. Or in Luke 12, when the, uh, rich, uh, the, the rich fool says, Oh, I have so many things. What shall I do with all my things? He's talking to himself. All right. Well, this guy says, And I'm fired. What am I going to do? Two options. And here's what he says. I am too old to dig. I can't, I can't get a labor job. And I'm too ashamed to beg. You mean 
You mean you couldn't go to a friend and say, lost my job. Could you, could you help me out for a while? Too ashamed. Many people are ashamed to go to a church or any place to ask for help, for money. Because there's the shame of admitting, I lost my job or whatever. There's shame when there shouldn't be, but there is. I'm too old to dig and to beg, I am ashamed. Look what the shame does to him. Here's what it happened. Here's what happened. This is why I say it drives us. I know what I'll do. I'll call in all the people that owe my, my boss money, and I'll tell them to cut it in half or cut it by a third. And they'll think I'm such a great guy, they'll invite me into their houses to live. And Jesus telling the story, the owner of the business says, I commend the shrewdness of my manager. And it really upsets people. They think, Jesus, are you putting your seal of approval on somebody that did something so sleazy as that? No, no. He's putting his seal of approval on how clever he was in his sleaziness. It's exactly right, because it goes on to say that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. They know they are better. They are better at doing things that are wrong in handling money than we are at handling it right. That's what he's saying. That's the basic message of, of, of the storyline. But the point is, I'm ashamed to beg. So it drives him. We see that shame literally drives people. Now, lastly, we've looked at, we've looked at what shame is, kind of defined it, sort of given us sort of a, a sense of, of, of its definition and how it's in describing it, seeing it in, in Genesis 2 and other passages. And we've looked at how the believer, uh, you know, can, can feel the shame that they shouldn't feel just by coming through the line of Adam. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. And then the shame that other people put on us, all those kinds of things. Now, what about the approach of talking to people in the world that do not have the gospel that might deny that they have any shame? They might be like a Nebuchadnezzar. They might be like somebody that's constantly telling you how great they are. And deep down, you know the very reason they're telling you that is they're keeping you at a distance. They got, they got stuff going on inside. This is true of an atheist, an agnostic, a Jew, a Muslim, a Protestant, a Catholic. I don't care who they are. If the person does not know Jesus in whatever religion, whatever they, whatever they are, there is still a shame that is associated with it no matter how much they deny it. There just is. And so, shame in the unbeliever, everyone, and I've said this in the past, everyone is looking to get back to the garden. Everyone wants to get back to Eden. Why? Because in Eden, you're naked and not ashamed. There's no shame in Eden. And the lost person isn't thinking in terms of Eden or the garden. They use other terms. They'll use the term utopia. We're going we're gonna to fix this place, and, and, and we're going to make this place better, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a place where I can really feel good about myself and good about life, and it's the next computer or medical discovery, whatever, but there's all kinds of ways. It's either putting more money into education or finding better politics, what have you, all those things, but they're all, they're all cover-ups. They're all band-aids. They're, they're, they're not the real issue. So how do we approach people that are really struggling? in these particular areas. When you are on a football team or 
you work in a, in, a, in a grocery store or in the government or wherever you happen to be, you're around people. And it's important that people know that you are a safe person to talk to. You don't have to come in and hand them a gospel track. And you, you, you can sit down with people and just get to know people. And after a while, people begin to realize without even maybe understanding anything much about your spiritual background or religious background, they just find you a non-judgmental, loving, safe person to be with. And once people find somebody who is safe, they start unloading their problems. And once they see how well you handle that, that you're not shocked or judging or unloving, they'll unload more problems. And then eventually you tell your story and then the gospel moves in. This is what the world is looking for. Basically everybody that gets up every morning is saying, can somebody tell me which way is Eden? Can somebody tell me how to get to Eden? Hey, is, is Eden that way or this way? Where is it? And the only people that know are believers. We're the only ones that know there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're the only ones that know that. And yet people still, they've got that conscience, they've got the law written in their hearts, whether they believe it or not doesn't make any difference. It's still true. <laughs> Unbelief doesn't erase the truth. Okay? So this is where words come in, words of pouring life into people, encouraging people that are not in the kingdom, allowing people to feel very, very safe around you. Because if they sense that you're at all condemning or judgmental, and this is difficult because once they find out you're a Christian, they're likely to say, oh, you're those narrow-minded people that think that everything the world is doing is wrong, that you, know, you think this issue is wrong and that issue is wrong, and then they sense that there isn't a safety net with you. Until, and I've said this before, until you say, love is not to be construed as agreement, and disagreement is not to be construed as hate. We disagree. You want to know something? I love you. I don't care. I love you. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says, we're not to judge the world. You can tell them it's right in Scripture. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you. And I'm, I'm, I'm a safe place for you. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you believe, whether we have different moral or ethical values, I'm here for you. There was a guy that was in this church many years ago. He died the same day my mother, my mother died in 2008, in June of 2008. Many of you remember this name, J.R. Davison. J.R. would come to church, he'd sit down, he would introduce himself to people that he hadn't met, and he would often say, hey, you want to go to lunch? Or... Uh, uh, he'd chat in the parking lot. or, or he did, he'd, just, he'd just befriended everybody. He didn't have a big job. He just kind of an ordinary kind of guy. But he absolutely had this passion for people and wanting them to come to really understand who Jesus is. And <laughs> J.R. would say this to you if, if, he, if he met you and he talked to you for a few minutes after the service. He'd say, I just want you to know something. If you are ever struggling in any way, I'm here. I'm a safe haven. You can tell me anything. It's not going to shock me. It's not going to cause me to think poorly of you. I'm here. He died of a, of a massive heart attack in June on a, on a hike. 
And I got the word, and it was the same day my mother passed away, and I knew there was nothing I could do about that. She was up in Annapolis. I knew it was coming. I prepared for it. And I had to speak at the evening service, which we had back in those days. It was a, quite a deal. I raced out to West Virginia, and I go to the coroner's office, and here's J.R. lying on this slab with his boots on. And I said, got his boots on, still going strong with his boots on. So we had to announce it to the church, so we had a service at Reston Bible Church for all the people he had ministered to there. Then we went out to McLean Bible Church and had a service at McLean Bible Church. Then we had five home services because all the different people he had ministered to wanted to have something to say. He had touched more lives than I will ever touch. I will touch people in a broad base. He was one-on-one. -on -one. He was safe. Anybody could go to JR and tell them him anything. And there were so many people that said their lives were so totally changed because he was loving, non-judgmental, and safe. And yesterday, I started thinking about words, what words mean to make a person feel safe or encouraged. And my dad wrote me lots and lots of letters as, uh, when, when I was in college. And a lot of you know some of my story, but this letter came 4 May 1965, so a few years ago, well before many of you were born. I was 21, and I was at the Naval Academy, and I wasn't doing well. And my dad was a former superintendent of the Naval Academy. He had just left, and I had come in, and my grades were a .56. In case you're wondering, out of a 4.0, not doing too well, all right? And I read this yesterday, and I just, and I wept as I read it. But I think I got the weeping out, and I got through it in the first service. But I want you to see what it looks like, what words, what words do in times of great shame, because I had shamed my father in a lot of respects. My dad, dad was very well known. And here I was just struggling like crazy. Dear Mike, looking out over our garden tonight, just before dark, and he's writing this from Paris, and seeing the cherry trees in full bloom took me back in memory 21 years ago to the old Rhode Island farmhouse we lived in when you were born. There was a huge apple orchard out back, and those old trees were bursting into bloom the night I drove your mother to the Catholic hospital in Providence, Providence, Rhode Island, to await the arrival of David Michael Minter. I remember how kindly but how firmly the sisters advised me that there was nothing more for me to do. After leaving Mary with them, I had finally drove back this is obviously very different than today, where you sit right there in the room and watch everything. Uh, almost every moment of the night I was expecting to hear. But you still hadn't arrived when I headed to work at 7.30 the very next morning. He says, uh, and it wasn't until around 9 that I finally got word that you had joined the Minter clan and that you and your mother were fine. Someday when you have children of your own, just think about this, someday when you have children of your own, you will know what this really means. So I, when my son turned 21... I wrote him a letter similar to this, and I attached this letter to that. And now he has a son, and he will attach those, and we'll just hopefully keep this chain moving. In a matter of hours, you will be 21 years old, and by the standards of the Western world, you will officially be a man. Uh, on an occasion such as this, it is customary for a father to offer advice based on his own wisdom and experience to a son entering officially the state of manhood. But I don't think it is necessary for me to attempt to advise you about your life for I know from having watched your development 
that you have a fine appreciation for those basic principles on which a successful life must be founded, integrity, honesty, firm religious convictions, sensitivity to the rights and beliefs of others, and a sense of humor and unswerving loyalty to those to whom loyalty is due. Now listen to these words. I know that you are going through a tough time right now, but no matter what, I know you will come out on top. Suppose my dad had said, you know, this is such an embarrassment, and um, we, we, we love you, but you're really just, you've just, you're just such a failure, and it's really hurt your mother and me. He didn't. And every letter I ever got was the same thing. And was I ashamed, walking around, named mentor, and everybody in the academy knew, and everybody knew my grades, and then the next thing I know, I'm on the front page of the Washington Post, Walter Cronkite is announcing things about me. I'm on Time Magazine, Newsweek. Y'all didn't know this, did you? Any rate, uh, and it was a tough time. Those words, but no matter what, I know you'll come out on top. And yesterday I cried. Not because I've come out on top, but because of a safe place. And my mom was a prophet because she said, okay, you're not good at school, which I wasn't. She said... She said, but you're funny, and I think someday you're going to wind up being on stage. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> so, at any rate, um, it's a sweet letter, and I, I, I guess what I really want to end with is this. Everybody is suffering with some kind of shame, and you've got to find people that you are safe with, that you know love you no matter what, encourage you no matter what, and take you to the gospel over and over again. And I, I say this because for those of you that don't know Jesus, you have no hope in dealing with this thing called shame. You're, you're just going to continue to... And the energy that it requires to put up the mask and to fake it day after day is a lot of energy. But when you come to Christ, there's that now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is simply you admitting the fact that you are in desperate need of Christ, that you don't know him. That when you come to him with all of your shame and your guilt and your sin, and you just dump it at the feet of the cross and realize that Christ paid for all of that. And you will now be justified, declared righteous. Not your righteousness, his righteousness placed to your account. And with that, there's no condemnation. And it'll change your life, and your life will change the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this dear time with these dear people. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege of opening up your word and seeing what you have to say about this subject of shame of which we all experience. Oh, God, how I pray. We would come across people that are safe, that we might be safe, and that we would touch the lives of people we come across in the workplace that don't know you. And I pray today that not one would leave here without calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to give them everlasting life. Now, Father, dismiss us with your grace, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.